People often ask me what I would change in medicine, and everybody has some things they would like to see change, and none of us has all the answers. I do think that doing too much too quickly in healthcare with great overhauls are ultimately unrealistic political nightmares. Yes, you and I have a lot of opinions, maybe about pharmaceutical pricing, quality payments, but that stuff has too many complexities and conflicts of interest to keep it simple. Don't trust anyone who has oversimplified answers to huge problems. So let's tackle very specific topics with identifiable solutions. The things that seem like a no-brainer, at least to me, the stuff where I bet more than 90% of people agree on the principles that we could actually change tomorrow if the will became strong enough. Some of these items help patients, other help folks employed in healthcare, but ultimately, whenever a group of people are doing better, we all do better. Meaning, if a patient feels they have been treated well by the healthcare system, interactions with clinicians and nurses will be more pleasant going forward. And who doesn't like pleasant experiences? Not to mention that everybody in healthcare is also a patient at some point. So I'm going to try and keep my asks relatively short because I don't want to be too greedy and ask too much or ask for anything that's too complicated. And by the way, if you know any senators or congressmen, please share this episode or at least the suggestions with them if you believe in them. So I think the thing that I would like to first get specific about is talking about the charge master, but ultimately what happens with it. So healthcare institutions need to publicly publish their charge master, which is the list of costs of what they charge. While that seems simple enough, that actually is not even my ask on this round for what I want changed, meaning I think all healthcare institutions should be forced to publicly publish our charge master. They don't. But more important than publishing a charge master is that a patient paying out of pocket should never have to pay more than the negotiated price already agreed on with an insurance company. So what do I mean by that? Let's say a procedure costs $10,000 either at a hospital or a surgical center or wherever. By the way, these uh, costs are almost impossible to find, but everybody knows that the reimbursement is not actually going to be $10,000. So the insurance company always negotiates discounted rates. So if fictional hospital A charges $10,000 for that procedure, Maybe an insurance company like Humana has negotiated a contract price of paying $3,000, or United has contracted a price, say, $2,500. What I am saying is that an individual paying out of pocket who doesn't have insurance should never have to pay more than the lowest negotiated rate. Therefore, in this case, where the charge master arbitrary price is $10,000, but the lowest price an insurance company has negotiated with the hospital to reimburse was $2,500, a consumer paying out of pocket would not have to pay more than $2,500 in my perfect world. Now, give that out-of-pocket payer a break is what I'm saying, and stop bankrupting so many people. It's one of the great ironies that the stress of paying for healthcare treatment can in itself become deadly on some occasions, or new conditions arise that are going to cost even more as a result of the stress we are putting on people. We need a healthcare plan that will cover a condition called high healthcare bill stress-related illness. It's a process of elimination illness, right? You say, we have run every test we can, Mrs. Smith, and by process of elimination, we have determined that your anxiety, 
depression, insomnia, and hypertension are related to you running out of money. What's that? You can't pay your bills? You used all your paid time off and sick days? Don't worry, you'll soon be calling in dead. But on the bright side, you will have finally quit smoking. Now, don't interpret me wrong. I don't believe in free healthcare because high-quality products have a cost. I don't believe in the outcomes of socialism, despite it being philosophically appealing, because I have read more than five paragraphs of history and know how the story ends. You end up getting rid of liberty while at the same time making everyone equally poor except for a handful of dudes exploiting everyone else. But that being said, I do like tying some socialist principles into capitalism, as I think hybrids can exist, and it is a false choice to only be purist in economic and political system choices. In fact, I don't know of a country that ever had total free market capitalism or pure democracy, meaning pure democracies wouldn't do gerrymandering, electoral colleges, or whatever other games that alter results. Along those lines, while I am a capitalist, Totally unrestrained capitalism driving full speed with no brakes can also crash and burn the average person who gets sick that is working. Particularly if they don't have healthcare benefits and they're just scraping by and doing the best they can. And to that end, those many millions of people in that predicament need a protection that says they don't have to pay more than the lowest already negotiated price. Legislative versions of varying degrees have been done in some states to start implementing some of this common sense, but it's not in many states at the moment. And for example, in California, there is what's called the California Hospital Fair Pricing Act, but this legislation needs to be nationwide and needs to be even more robust than it is in California. Now, the Reverend Martin Luther King said, This country has socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the poor. And I think this is a modern example of something he would put in that category had he survived. The powerful and those wealthy enough to afford insurance can have insurance professionals negotiate prices with big hospital systems. But a poor person who wants to pay his or her bills can potentially be stuck paying a ludicrously and arbitrarily set full price. It must end. And yes, I have worked in hospital administration, and I know hospitals will work with people and discount a percentage off the charge master, but that isn't enough in my opinion. The lowest already negotiated contracted price is what a person paying out of pocket should have to pay. All right, the second thing, let's move on. All hospital-based clinicians know the observation status must go away as it makes no clinical difference. It is just more paperwork for clinicians. Hospital administration has to hire more employees to manage this issue. And ultimately, it is a very confusing and often substantial bill patients end up paying a lot for. Now, physicians and nurses don't treat patients differently, whether a person is put on observation status for 19 hours or put in a hospital room for five days, right? We don't say the guy in room 402 is on observation status, so give him less attention than the patient in 404 who is admitted. Yes, I am aware that the reason observation status exists is to save money, and that's fine. 
we don't need to make a maze of games to achieve that goal. We can actually make this budget neutral tomorrow. Find a number between the lower observation reimbursement and the higher admission reimbursement that is budget neutral. To make it simple for the sake of making this point, let's take a common condition like pneumonia. Let's say a person is admitted to inpatient status for pneumonia, and let's just say it reimburses at $100, and a pneumonia patient put on observation status, let's just say reimburses at $50, we should just split the difference and charge everybody $75. Now, the number may be a bit off from simply just averaging the two between observation or inpatient because one may be used more than the other, but the concept still holds. Just have one number, a number that currently pays less than the current inpatient charge, and that's what the DRG should pay. DRG is diagnosis-related group, and it's a statistical system of classifying any inpatient stay into groups for the purpose of payment. Now, to click boxes saying someone is inpatient or observation, to actually have to use parts of the medical record to justify your decision, even though it has zero medical benefit for the patient or the next several clinicians and nurses reading that note, it is really total nonsense at this point that we are still doing this. With observation status, we literally built a new problem and complexity into a system that didn't have that particular problem before. It's crazy. All right, the next changes I'm going to bring up are actually plagiarized, or my my wish list of changes, I should say. And it's plagiarized from an article in the journal called Medical Economics, and it's from a December 19th, 2008 article. However, I know the guy well who wrote it, and I have his permission, as the author happens to have the exact same name, birth date, and DNA as me. I don't think the article had any impact in 2008, since I'm pretty much saying the same thing in 2017, but so few people read these days. I bet less than a thousand people ever read that article, and therefore there will be more people listening to this episode on the first day it goes live on the internet than ever read that article. So consider this a second attempt at trying to convince people to make logical changes. Again, if you really believe in most of the changes I'm talking about, please share this episode. Not for me. I do these lectures for free, hoping it improves people's practices in life. Do it for you to improve your life, because nothing changes if people are not informed. If you don't think what I'm talking about are needed changes, then don't share and let's keep the status quo, because Maybe I'm off base on these ideas, but I don't think so. So one of the suggestions that I had in that article at that time, and I still believe in, is that we should require unbiased expert medical witnesses. If physicians don't know whether they were hired by the prosecution or the defense, they would be able to provide unprejudiced testimony. And This would actually also benefit patients harmed if it is true malpractice because physicians would actually be giving unbiased testimony that it is. Now, I have been an expert witness a few times in court and in depositions, and let me tell you, it's too lucrative. There are not many things where I feel I've been overpaid, but that is one of them. I have never walked away 
from a call night at the hospital and thought, wow, that was just too easy. But expert witnesses, they're charging by the hour more than a physician normally makes seeing patients. And so it's a different story. There are times you literally are just getting paid to sit outside of the courtroom for hours because things are delayed or other witnesses are taking a long time on the stand. And you're just sitting there on a bench looking at your iPhone or whatever, charging by the hour because it's time you took away from your practice, theoretically speaking, at least. And so maybe you weren't actually going to practice that day and it's extra. But, you know, of course, where this all comes from is that's how the legal system works. It's, it's just no different for doctors than it is for lawyers who are charging by the hour. And I have been in depositions where I personally, whether I'm right or wrong, I, I feel convinced that the reason both sides kept asking me the same question in different ways is so the lawyers could bill more hours. And yes, you know, I ultimately bill more hours, but that doesn't feel right. And I don't do that line of work a lot because the experiences often leave me a little bit sad. And I've only done it in defense of physicians or hospitals that I think were getting falsely accused. And I get that sometimes there are also reasons why lawsuits are very justified and important. But so this isn't a diatribe against all lawsuits. But anyway, too often this stuff is a frivolous game. Let's say, I don't know, let's say it's only one in five cases that's actually a game being played. That has real consequences, even if a falsely accused person beats the charge or accusation. And any lawyer or expert witness getting paid can convince themselves that they are doing something good for the world in nearly any situation, right? I mean, if you invest in tobacco or oil and make a lot of money, you can think to yourself, wow, I gave so many people jobs harvesting tobacco or deep sea drilling or whatever, right? You never say to yourself, I feel guilty. I invested in that oil spill in the ocean or I'm giving more people cancer. We think, dang, that oil spill is going to cost the company more money or if smokers die, they won't be able to smoke more product. Well, maybe we don't feel that evil, but you get what I say. We can justify anything. No aspect of life is spared from this kind of thinking, by the way. It's like when a woman with long, beautiful, flowing hair gets a short haircut and every girlfriend that she sees for the next week does the obligatory. I love it. It is so darn cute. People convince you that a bad decision was good, even though they are just happy now that they look hotter than you. And guys are the exact same way, by the way. I'm telling you, if Leonardo DiCaprio were to shave his head and get a neck tattoo, most guys inside would be thinking competitively, one less dude we got to worry about. But, you know, if he's your friend, you'd be like, hey, man, that looks pretty badass right on. Anyway, the point is that we can convince ourselves or become convinced by others that things are all good the way they are. Even if you are an expert witness, don't falsely convince yourself that the current expert testimony system is set up as a very good thing because it is biased. Listen, two expert witnesses with the exact same board certification looking at the same material should not be arriving at a completely different conclusion just because the side that hired them wants them to make that argument. All right, so what else was from that article? I'm probably not going to get into depth on most of these. Let's see. It said, eliminate the three-night requirement to stay in the hospital to be able to go to a skilled nursing facility. I think 
most people that practice in the hospital understand why that's silly. One of the things I brought up in that article too is that I feel there should be a co-payment for feudal care. So if we're in a situation that is clearly feudal and end stage, I don't care if it's even just 10%. I feel that there should be a daily copay for that situation if a family refuses to accept the disease process taking its course and comfort measures applied without artificially extending life if multiple physicians and caregivers are on the exact same page for multiple days in a row. And again, we can start that daily copayment as low, such as at 10%, but if it's $10,000 a day of critical care, then paying $1,000 a day may make people realize that one, that's a very small proportion of actually what is costing everybody else. And of course, it's not just the economic resources, but the time resources of nurses and physicians who can't be providing that care for other patients, as well as the importance of not torturing people at the end of life who are in a futile situation with lines, tubes, and more prolongation. All right, and the last thing that I'll talk about from that article was that I still think we need some sort of federal law that makes it really easy to get unsafe drivers off the road until the situation has changed. So what I mean by that is before I came to Colorado, I was in a state where the DMV and the state law supported this, so you would just have a DMV form, and if someone came in with chronic recurrent seizures, um, alcoholism, and withdrawal all the time, brain tumors that were making them act funny. You just filled out this form, you faxed it into the DMV, and that was it. You know, they can get their license back, but things had to change. It was just like a few check boxes at the time. This was more than 10 years ago, actually more than 15 years ago. But you would just check box the reason why you wanted their license at least suspended for the moment, and you could say very late-stage dementia, and the patient got so lost that they accidentally drove themselves to two cities away from they normally are supposed to be. You've all seen all these type of cases, but my point being is that not every state has this, and I was shocked in Colorado that I can't just fill out a form, fax it in, and someone at least get their license held for a while while the medical condition is re-looked at or another physician gives an opinion or the DMV retests them. That form should really just exist on every medical floor, just like a blood consent form exists on every medical floor. And it really shouldn't be state by state. We all drive in all the states of the nation when we're on vacation or traveling to friends or family members. This can affect any of us. This needs to be a nationwide law. So anyway, we can change this stuff. And it won't take a miracle. I know about miracles. As a teenager, the fact I never got arrested or got anyone pregnant, that is a miracle. Some stuff is a matter of luck, but not this stuff. Policy change and legislation is a matter of effort. All right, you have been listening to Dr. Gil Parat, and I will catch you on the next round.